Professor David Ruderman on the topic, the Baal Shem Tov. It says verses. I remember I promised you a cage match, so we'll, we have no cage. Imagine we have a cage. Baal Shem Tov versus Ga Gaon, Elijah of Vilna, David Ruderman. Thank you. Here, uh, and I'm absolutely amazed by your endurance and uh, coming back once, and I guess that's the greatest compliment that you're still here. Um, so just a word or two. So I mean, Cooperman is an old friend from about 45 years. I could tell you many stories about him, but I won't. Um, but uh, I'm glad uh, he overlapped, and uh, uh, those of you that heard me speak on the Renaissance in the ghetto, I'm sure his approach was different. Um, and, uh, you know, gamzu uh, gamzu. this and this are both Torah, so uh, that's good. Um, the other thing I wanted to just add uh, to what Ari said, um, tonight uh, I'm going to talk about my latest book. Uh, it's true, that rabbi actually, I, I listened to that lecture, I couldn't believe it. Every word he said out of his mouth came from my book, so what is he giving the lecture for? But I guess, he, at least he attributed, I mean, it was honest, you know, so. Uh, um, but... Um, uh, my book, which I published uh, in 2014, uh, which was based on a series of talks I gave at the, at, uh, at uh, uh, the University of Washington, and University of Washington published the book, um, uh, the Strom Lectures, uh, which are held every year. Um, so I'm going to talk about that, and actually since I moved into the uh, 21st century uh, in, uh, in 2014, um, uh, I have even some PowerPoint. Uh, for this lecture and also uh, for that lecture tonight and also uh, the lecture tomorrow night. Now tomorrow night, I mean, just to show you that I'm, I'm still an active scholar uh, at my advanced age, uh, I'm going to speak tomorrow night, the third lecture in the series on Jewish-Christian relations about my present work. So this is unpublished material uh, and I have PowerPoint as well. So uh, you're getting the latest that I've created and, uh, and then we'll go back to some of the oldies but goodies. Uh, like my lecture last night in Amster about Amsterdam, as some of you heard. Uh, okay, so this topic, actually, I haven't taught for a long time, uh, but I grew up on this stuff, and uh, I, did, I did want to talk about it. Um, I call this series, of course, Grand Great Debates, um, but this is really an interesting case where uh, two very opposing views. Uh, David over there is a Galiziana, and I'm a Litvak. Uh, and how could these two different communities and two different approaches to Judaism actually come together? So I want to show you how they do in a certain respects by not only speaking, <coughs> you're going to get four for the price of two. I'm going to speak about the Baal Shem Tov, the Besh, the founder of Hasidism, lived from 1700 to 1760. Uh, and I'm also going to speak about Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, his arch rival who lived from 1720 to 1797. So we are speaking about a younger man, the latter. Um, we're also, you will notice that Hasidism only emerges at the end, the last two or three decades of the 18th century. So the Baal Shem Tov is very much like Jesus in the sense that you know Jesus did his thing, then he died, and then they created Christianity after his death. And similarly, Hasidism emerges as a movement uh, uh, really during the partitions of Poland at the end of the 18th century. And one could even date the history of Hasidism 
from the publication of a book in 1815 called Shivchei HaBesht. Shivchei HaBesht is a book which is translated by my colleague at the University of Pennsylvania, Don Ben Amos, in praise of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, and it is a book of stories. It is a book of, of, uh, of uh, remarkable anecdotes which, of course, lionize the figure of the Baal Shem Tov. And perhaps one could argue that with the publication of this book and actually taking the story of the Baal Shem Tov, which, remember, he had died in 1760, making him into a kind of hero-like figure, a, 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 a divine-like figure almost, um, somehow the movement coalesced around this image. In other words, now, uh, uh, as the movement decentralized in the 19th century, uh, if you didn't see the Rebbe anymore, if he wasn't in your sight, you could pick up his book, read his stories, and somehow identify with that life. So what we're speaking about, therefore, is the emergence of Hasidism much later on than the Baal Shem Tov, uh, and even his de debates with the Gaon Elijah Vilna uh, at the end of the 18th century. But of course, we're speaking not only about the specifics of that period, but also the legacy of the 19th century. Now let me say one more word of, uh, of introduction before I launch into Hasidism and then its opponents. Uh, and then sort of bring them together. That's really my goal. And I started at 20 after, correct, Ari? We are, unlike some speakers, I'm right on time. Okay. Uh, so uh, 20 after, so that's uh, uh, five after, okay. Um, I once gave remarks similar to this before a plenary session of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the national body of reform rabbis. There were about 500 rabbis. I wanted to say something important. So I talked about, uh, believe it or not, the Baal Shem Tov and the Gaon of Vilna. Uh, but my point, as you will see, is that this contrast, this tension between the two, on the one hand, we could, might define it in modern terms as spirituality, feeling. I was with a rabbi last night named... Uh, Kovod, yeah, Ka Kavod, right? He's into that, right? Um, so spirituality and touchy-feely and, you know, California, that's California for an Eastern Jew, you, you, you know, a coast Jew like me. Um, as opposed to learning, uh, diligence, uh, study, and so on, um, as if these are two opposing opposites. And what I was really doing in that uh, presentation before the CCR was arguing that spirituality is not enough. And learning is not enough. You need both, uh, which seems obvious, right? But uh, in the context of my own movement, I kind of felt that the emphasis upon spirituality, which was to me kind of empty and vacuous, without any real substance, uh, you know, and, and, and also that there is spirituality in learning. In other words, the contrast is an artificial one. So that's where I'm going to go at the end. In other words, that's my final lesson to you. Uh, but I want to get there. And I want to show you how these paths diverged and then converge at the end, to some extent, not completely. We still, I'm, he's still a Galician, I'm still a Litvak. That's not going to change. All right. So let me begin uh, with Hasidism. Um, this is a big subject, and um, I'm only going to speak about the early years of Hasidism. In other words, we have so many historians that have devoted their whole life to the study of Hasidut today. 
there is a group actually that's been meeting in Europe uh, and in Israel uh, and working on a new history of Hasidism with about 25 people uh, working on it. So it is really, uh, and, and coordinated by, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever met David Beale, who is at uh, UC Davis, uh, another uh, historian of, of modern Jewry, uh, who has written a book on Gershon Shalom and other things. Uh, but it, this is really quite enormous enterprise. You know, like Maimonides, this is also a cottage industry of work, uh, and Hasidism has exploded in recent years. Not only among Hasidim themselves and among, you know, traditional traditionalists that write about Hasidut, but I'm speaking here about the academic world of the study of Hasidism. So I'm only going to give it sort of, uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg. It's an enormous subject, but I want to give you some kind of orientation. Have you had a scholar recently speak about Hasidism or not recently? No, okay. So there are many approaches to this subject, and this is by way of introducing the Baal Shem Tov. The first approach is, has been primary for the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, and that is the approach of seeing Hasidism as a religious mystical movement. In this sense, it is directly linked to the history of Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism. Now, we've spoken about Kabbalah sort of either you know, partially or uh, indirectly or uh, throughout our, our lectures. But here, uh, what I'm speaking about is the approach taken by the great scholar of Kabbalah, Gershon Sholem. If you look at the last three chapters of his remarkable work called Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, you will see that there is a chapter on Lurianic Kabbalah, 16th century, a chapter on Sabbatianism, that is the movement surrounding the messianic figure Shabtai Tzvi, which is the subject of an upcoming lecture of mine, uh, and the third final chapter is Hasidism. So notice the link between the two. In other words, Hasidism is a response to the crisis of the false messiah, Shabtai Tzvi. Lurianic Kabbalah was a Kabbalistic system which emphasized the end of the world, or to put it in very, very simple terms, a myth of the explosion of the universe, of evil uh, being commingled with the good, and the need for the mystic to restore these broken pieces and to create what is called tikkun, Tikkun is, we still got this thing up. Uh, tikkun is the restitution of the divine sparks, which were scattered all over the universe by a kind of big bang, right? Called in Hebrew, Shvirata Kelim, the breaking of the vessels. I don't know if you've ever studied Lorianic Kabbalah before, but all I want you to know is about Tikkun. According to Gershon Sholom, this is a remarkable uh, uh, investigation of the history of mystical ideas. Shabtai Tzvi's followers needed to justify the fact that this false messiah had converted to Islam. This is a story I will tell you much more about uh, in, in, in another lecture, and I invite you to come because it's, it's, it's one of my uh, favorite. I was going to say one of my best, but that sounds immodest. <laughs> um, so um, so what, what, what Shabtai Tzvi's followers do is try to explain the paradox of a messiah converting to Islam. How is that possible? So what they explain is that the Messiah had to go down to evil in order to excavate the divine sparks that were scattered all over the place. They were being in, uh, somehow enslaved in their captivity by evil forces, and therefore the Messiah goes down. I don't know too much math, but 
minus times minus equals a plus, correct? So in other words, by going down to evil, by doing evil, and the ultimate evil is conversion now out of Judaism, he somehow is able to revive the spark. So he goes down, yirida. Remember that word, yirida. He, he, he goes down in order to, litzorich uh, aliyah. Uh, in other words, you go down in order to make aliyah, I mean to ascend, right, to go up. So that's exactly what the Messiah was doing. So in other words, the followers of Shabtai Tzvi were using Luriana Kabbalah, were using the framework of its conceptual uh, ideas to build a theory about the Messiah. Now all, according to Shalom, Shachasidism comes about. They are very upset by the rupture of Judaism and the notion of this heresy of the Messianic creed. Uh, by this time, Jacob Frank, who you will also hear about in my lecture, this guy, this diabolical figure who not only uh, converts, but he converts to Christianity uh, and then is tried by the Inquisition because he's not a very good Christian either. Um, and uh, it, the world is totally messed up. There's a heresy out there. And when you have heresy, uh, you usually have orthodoxy. In other words, the rabbis uh, tried to gain control and tried to impose their own stability. According to Shalom, Tikkun re was replaced by a new concept called Deveikut. Deveikut. How would we translate Deveikut? All right, Devek is indeed glue. Uh, Deveikut is kind of clinging. The, the idea that the, the holy is, that the Hasid touches all the mundane things of the world and they are transformed into the holy. Uh, in any case, the conceptual framework, what Hasidism does is to preserve the ideas of Lurianic Kabbalah, but to remove all the radical ideas of the Sabbateans, the heretical ideas of the Sabbatean, and to restore Judaism in a new way, in a new way which is kosher. Uh, so, so to make a long story short, and I can't do this in great detail here, Sholom has, in the terms of the history of mystical ideas, sees Hasidism as the kind of state of restoring Judaism to, a, to, ortho, to its, its basic uh, pure, purity uh, after the Sabbatean crisis, after the mess of Shabtai Tzvi. And therefore, if you follow the concepts, and I'll talk about one or two more before I finish, uh, you see that ultimately what, what you end up with is a new uh, expression of Judaism, a revival of mystical piety, but in a way that is normative as opposed to uh, uh, heretical, as opposed to challenging the very authority of the rabbis, which was the movement of Shabtai Tzvi. So that first approach then is basically um, uh, a, a kind of religious mystical movement. One other idea which is very important for uh, Shalom and his disciples is the idea of the tzaddik. The tzaddik is the rebbe. The tzaddik is the pure leader of Hasidism. And in many respects, that leader of Hasidism is a kind of counter figure to the old rabbinate. This is the new rabbi. And what the rabbi does is Notice the same concept in, from Luriana Kabbalah, but now it's been totally transformed. What does it mean to go down in order to go up? This kind of leader is not, you know, an elitist. He's not a rabbi that sits in his little, you know, uh, I was going to say ivory tower. 
what he does is he walks and he gets himself dirty hanging out with the masses. You know, he goes and he, and he gets dirty, he goes down to their level, and then he brings them up. In other words, that's the idea of the Hasidic tzaddik as opposed to a, a regular rabbi that stands apart, that removes himself, um, that, is, that feels that he is elite. Uh, notice, and, and that's a wonderful example, the Yeridata tzaddik, the, 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 the going down of the tzaddik, as preserving that idea, but it's now not going down to do evil, God forbid, uh, it's simply um, uh, transforming uh, uh, the idea into a useful idea of leadership. And then there's one more idea related to this, just to show you how Hasidism works for Shalom. The notion of Torah HaMachshavot HaZarot. And this, I, the only example I can give you of this is a sexist example, so you will, I'm going to ask your forgiveness before I start. But uh, this is the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, so what does that mean? Torah HaMachshavot HaZarot, David, translate? Strange thoughts. Okay, strange. What do we mean by that? All right, so picture yourself in Jerusalem uh, on a hot sunny day in August uh, on a bus that sort of goes near Me'asharim, you know, the, the, the Orthodox area. You've been there? You've been there. So, uh, in, so there are all these young uh, teenagers, and uh, they all get on the bus. One girl kind of dressed with a very short shorts and uh, scantily, and she sits down next to a chassid. I'm, I'm giving you an example of, uh, of Torata Machshevot as I wrote. Now, uh, in, in real terms, what's going to happen is the Hasid's going to scream, or he's going to get out, or he's not going to stay there, and so on. But according to the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, according to this doctrine which Sholem explains, this is a kind of vestige of the Sabbatean idea. We're not speaking about the realm of, of bad or alien acts. We're speaking only about thoughts now, all right? So first of all, the idea has been refined into a kind of intellectual thing. So what you could do is, of course, put your hands up like this and don't look at the girl and, and her beautiful figure. Or what you could do is stare at her and, and, and then say to yourself, but who created this beauty? And in other words, and thus your evil thought will be transformed into a good thought. Again, Yiridal Tzorech Aliyah. I always do this. I might take it seriously. This is where I'm a chassi. No, 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 I, I don't do that. Uh, but essentially, the, the, notice again, the, uh, the, the, the idea, the language of these concepts have been preserved from Luriana Kabbalah in the 16th century. I can't really show you in, in, in greater detail than this, but I hope you get the idea, into Sabbatianism, into Hasidism, but they've been tamed, they've been transformed to a higher level of personal piety and, pers and, and personal relationship. So in other words, the beauty of the woman now is transformed into a greater love of God, okay? Which sounds really nice if you could actually think that way. Um, so that's the first approach to, um, uh, to, to this idea. I, I could go on, there are great debates. One of the great Israeli historians, um, uh, uh, Yisrael Dinur, uh, who was one of the founders of the, the Jerusalem School of Historiography, um, also found in Hasidism, uh, as most of the Israeli historians have, uh, a notion of, uh, of uh, Ben Sion Dinur. I said Yisrael Dinur, but I meant Ben Sion Dinur. Uh, Dinor was also the, one of the first uh, um, uh, heads of the of, of, uh, Department of Education of the Israeli government. Uh, and he came up with an idea that, uh, that uh, Hasidism was messianic, and that uh, I'm going to actually give a whole series of lectures on messianism as well. 
that are coming up. Uh, and Sholem strongly disagreed. In other words, he argued essentially, and he used this word, the neutralization of the messianic idea. In other words, messianism was too dangerous. That's what had led us into Shabtai Tzvi, and therefore neutralizing the messianic idea, moving from the national messianic plane to the, the idea of personal relationships uh, between the Rebbe, the Tzaddik, and his flock. Uh, clearly, therefore, placed Judaism on a firm, stable foundation after the schism of the Sabbateans. So that's the first approach. The second approach is to look at Hasidism as a social movement. And here we have a whole series of historians, beginning with the most famous um, uh, uh, Dubnov, who was the great 19th century historian of Eastern Europe. Uh, we could mention a whole series of other names, but I'm going to try to avoid a lot of names. But basically, what we are talking about here is almost a kind of Marxist approach. Essentially, Hasidism is the reaction of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie uh, or the elite. In other words, the non-elite versus the elite. In other words, Hasidism is the ideology of the common man, uh, ideology of poor people, people that can express themselves uh, in very simple piety. You remember the story of the, the Hasidic boy that uh, someone, they try to uh, kick him out of a congregation because he's blowing a whistle, and the Rebbe recognizes it as this is the highest level of piety. So, uh, or, so you know, the, the kind of notion of popular piety as opposed to elitist piety where of in, in Lithuania where the rabbis are sitting around studying the yeshivot. So it's almost a kind of Marxist kind of definition. Later on, of course, there'll be a third party in this kind of conversation. Not only those uh, Hasidim and their opponents called the Mitnagdim, uh, who uh, you'll hear about very, very shortly, but a third party called the Maskilim, uh, those enlightened uh, uh, Jews who are very much touched by the European Enlightenment and are critical clearly of rabbinic study of, uh, and, and at the same time are particularly critical of what they think are the magical popularist approaches of the Hasidim which are totally irrational and therefore make no sense. So the history of debates in, in early modern, in, 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 in the 18th century in Eastern Europe are about Hasidim et Nakdim, but eventually about the Maskilim as well. The, um, and of course, later on, the Zionists will join into this conversation. The Yiddishists, uh, it is a very contentious world. I mean, it's a very dynamic and exciting world, but it's also a very contentious world. So, uh, and I should mention in this regard, one other historian who was actually a teacher of mine, Jacob Katz. Uh, and actually, Bernie Cooperman did a great service to uh, our profession in translating, a, a, actually, a new translation of this work called Tradition and Crisis, uh, a translation by Bernard Cooperman. I give him full credit. Um, and uh, Jacob Katz, Masor to Mashber is Tradition and Crisis, is the name of the book. Jacob Katz, K-A-T-Z. Uh, this is an old book uh, written by a social historian, you might even say a sociologist, that sees Hasidism, unlike Sholom, as a crisis. A crisis, again, brought out by lower class people, in other words, an attempt to uh, introduce uh, a, a new element of Judaism that would focus on the needs of, of, uh, of poor people uh, living in the poorest regions of Eastern Europe, um, so the, the notion of a tradition on the one hand, which he sort of sets up, and the beginning of crisis 
crisis, Hasidism is a part, is an agent of this crisis as he understands Eastern European Jewish life. Uh, threatening the leadership of the Jewish community. Clearly the tzaddik is, as I mentioned, is a counter leader as opposed to the rabbi and so on. Uh, and therefore threatening the very foundations of this. Katz's views have been challenged by other historians, so this goes back and forth. But clearly, as you see here, the perspective on Hasidism is not about mystical ideas, as we saw in the case of Sholem and his disciples, but about social uh, realities and social ideologies. And finally, I want to talk about a third approach, as by way of introduction to all this, and then I'm going to zero in on Baal Shem Tov. Uh, and that is, Hasidism as a kind of theological, philosophical approach. Uh, this will also lead me into another lecture, so I don't have to explain it right now. Uh, and that is the popularization of uh, Hasidism, particularly by Martin Buber. And Buber's rewriting of the tales of the Hasidim and the impact of Hasidism on modern Jewish thought, particularly in Germany, uh, but also in America. Uh, we are you know, experiencing uh, those of you that heard me speak about Abraham Joshua Heschel and his neo-Hasidic uh, uh, theology, that clearly uh, he comes directly out of this Hasidic tradition, uh, and therefore there is a theological dimension, meaning that Jews have attempted to find in Hasidism elements which will somehow revive and resuscitate uh, their own relationship and attachment to Judaism. So that's an important uh, element to talk about. Now I think I've talked about various concepts, so let me now deal directly with the Baal Shem Tov and then, and the, and then the Gaon. Um, so the Baal Shem Tov is born in 770-60. We knew a great deal about this uh, until uh, all of a sudden a book appeared which kind of disrupted our understanding of you know, the simple Hasidim and the more elitist uh, opponents of the Hasidim and the Mitnagdim. The book was published, I can't recall, I think about the 1970s or 80s perhaps, by Moses Moshe or Murray Moshe Rossman, R-O-S-M-A-N. It is a biography of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, and um, I, if you want to see a book that, no, it's, it's remarkable. Here's a wonderful example of how scholarship can disrupt the myths, our own myths of the past. So what did he do? He, he went to Mejiba, which was where the Baal Shem Tov was born. And he got into the archives. And the archives, he found that the Baal Shem Tov wasn't as poor as he seemed to be. He was a rich landowner, given a large estate. I don't know if it was big as this campus right here, but a large estate in Mejiba to live. Uh, he was well financed by the Jewish community. Uh, and he clearly was not a poor man. So what does this say about the founder of Hasidism? Huh? It sort of kind of ruins the image of you know, the poor man's ideology. Um, Rossman went on to describe the work and to suggest that all we know about the Baal Shem Tov, other than these documents that he found in the archive, are from that book that I mentioned, published in 1815, called In Praise of the Baal Shem Tov, the Shivchei Habesht. Most of these stories, he claimed, were hagiography. He took a very skeptical view of them. Many of them are stories that talk about the Baal Shem Tov and his disciples and all kinds of, of people that he related to, uh, and even mentions how he hated Shabtai Tzvi, which is a kind of direct relationship between Shabtai Tzvi and the Baal Shem Tov. But these stories were written long after his death, 
uh, entire generation after his death. They are clearly hagiographic and therefore they are fictional. And therefore to try to create a biography about the Baal Shem Tov is impossible. So Rossman argued we really can't recreate the, uh, a biography nor can we speak of him as being a founder of Hasidism because indeed in 1760 there wasn't any Hasidism when he died. In other words, his, his, the myth-making of his disciples is clearly what created a movement. So therefore, there's very little to say about him except for his name. Now, some of you who are smart are going to tell me now what the Baal Shem Tov means. Baal Shem Tov. Master and is I, a good name. Right, I was hoping for that, and that's absolutely wrong. Okay, <laughs> so I knew I really wanted you to say someone answer correctly that I would have been messed up. Uh, but you answered exactly how I wanted you. Master of a good name. You've heard that translation before, right? It, that's not it. What is a Baal Shem? Let's start with that. Baal Shem. Take away the good. Then what do you got left? No. No, for something. You're missing it totally. Anybody else? I thought this was a bright group. I don't know. I'm disappointed. Um, Baal Shem. Anybody else want to try? Famous. No, you got it wrong. <laughs> a Baal Shem is a master of God's name, the four letters of the name, and using the name for magical purposes. You know the God's name is? yud Vavhe. Right. yud Vavhe. All right. Nobody's offended that I write yud Vavhe here. Uh, it is called the Tetragrammaton. It is a name that is, when we read it in the Bible, how do we pronounce it? Adonai. Adonai, correctly. We don't say, and that's not even a close to what that, you know? Uh, there's a very wonderful story. You mind if, I don't know, are you going to give me one more minute, Ari, if I tell a story? <laughs> yes. Um, so um, one of my teachers at uh, HUC, uh, Harry Orlinsky, who was, you know, great jokes. Uh, I don't know about his lectures, but he really had great jokes. <laughs> so he was once the president of the Society of Biblical Literature, and he had to give the presidential address. Uh, and he announced that the topic would be how to pronounce God's name. For the first time, he was going to reveal the secret, because no one knows exactly how to pronounce I mean, is, is it Yahweh or something like that? You know, that's not, that could be or could not be, and so on. So he gets up before, you know, 500 biblical scholars, all of them Protestant, you know, and all of them very serious about the biblical text. Uh, and he said, you know, you guys got it all wrong. Essentially, um, when Moses asked for God's name, uh, he, um, uh, there, there was, there was a, the sequence was out of order. And, and basically, uh, God, uh, Moses turned away for a second, and God was trying to get his attention. So he didn't answer and give his name. He just went, yoo-hoo. Uh, and, and that's how you pronounce it. Um, all right, I had to get that in. That didn't count as part of the lecture. So um, anyway, now you know how to pronounce God's name. Uh, the Baal Shem is a magical figure. I talked already in one of my lectures, and it's all blurred into one now. I don't know which one. But I talked about, uh, yeah, in, in The God in Nature, the beginning of the series, I talked about the magical base, uh, that was in Tustin, the magical base of Judaism, and how important magic and popular magic were within the culture of medieval and early modern Judaism. In the period that we are describing, we are a, a group of people who are called in Hebrew darshanim nodedim, or 
preachers, popular preachers that go from city to city giving little sermons, giving out amulets, uh, uh, teaching med medical and, 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 and magical advice and so on. These were known as a class as Baal Shem. In other words, masters of manipulating the letters of God to bring about magical activity. Yes, this was the culture uh, to a great extent in the regions of Volonia and Podolia where Hasidism emerged. The Baal Shem Tov is to be distinguished from the Baal Shem because he is a good master of manipulating God's name as opposed to the, 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 the ones that aren't as good as he is. Uh, that is the magical context of, uh, of, of Hasidism, and that is the, and, and popular piety uh, and the notion of, of a whole subculture of Jews, many of them, and also this is a result of the printing press. I heard you, you talked a lot about the printing press with, with Bernie, uh, and I have referred to the printing press, and of course there's a whole chapter in my book that, that uh, you have. Um, so, so clearly the print, printing pamphlets, printing little broadsheets, uh, these darshanim went around giving out, you know, a little magical formula and so on. And they were printed, they were sold as they went from city to city to city. This is part of the culture. So part of the culture is this rich man, which kind of kills the whole image. <laughs> then there's the Baal Shem image. And then there are all these stories that appeared much later, which some historians might argue would reveal something about the notion of the Baal Shem Tov. But much of it, of course, is by his disciples. So that's all I want to say about the Baal Shem Tov now and Hasidism. Now I want to shift to the Gaon, and then I want to come back to the generation that follows and sort of bring this together. And I have to watch my time. Okay. So the Gaon Elijah Vilna, uh, as you recall, lived about 20 years uh, later. He was born 20 years later than uh, uh, the Baal Shem Tov. We now have a new a book on him, which has proved to be very interesting and controversial. Uh, many of the Orthodox Jews have attacked this book online in all of their uh, Orthodox uh, chat rooms and so on. It's really quite interesting how this equals, you know, you, when you write about the Gaon of Vilna, I mean, you're going to get into trouble, whatever you say. I mean, he's such a, you know, a towering figure of Orthodoxy. So the Gaon of Vilna has, uh, the book is by Eli Stern. Uh, and he also gave it a very provocative title. He called it The Genius, published by Yale University Press. Um, Gaon Elijah Vilna doesn't mean the genius. The Gaon is a kind of honorific title, which we have already Gaonim in uh, the Islamic period and so on. Uh, but the Gaon is a kind of rabbinic title, right? A very distinguished rabbinic title. But Gaon, of course, but they wanted to sell books. He claims it was the editor's fault and they called it The Genius. Uh, so that already got him into trouble. But it's still a very interesting read. Uh, Ellie Stern is a young uh, assistant professor at Yale University um, and has done some very interesting work. Uh, so we have a new biography of him if you're interested. The story of Elijah Gaon of Vilna, of course, he is the ultimate Litvak, that is the intellectual, that is the person that pours over Talmud and that through Talmud, through the study of rabbinic texts, one reaches God. Uh, it would be incorrect to say that he wasn't, didn't have any mystical dimensions. He studied the Kabbalah as well. Uh, he had mystical trances. But the difference between his mystical trances and those of the Hasidim were that they were based on Torah. They were based on substance. They were based on learning. And the notion here of the, of, of, uh, and also he develops a critical methodology. 
an internal critical method. It's not based on the university or on the outside, even though Elie Stern tries to show that indeed many of the ideas parallel German philosophical ideas uh, of the 18th and 19th century. It is an idea of using the mind. It is the highest level of pilpulistic study, of engaging in the dialectics of the Talmudic uh, page, of mastering their intricacies. And the story is told that he used to work at this 23 hours a day. And the one hour he slept, he had dreams of rabbinic uh, Torah study. So uh, he never wasted a moment. Uh, this is the, the matmid, the image of the matmid of uh, Bialik's very famous poem uh, in the 19th century of a person that is totally oblivious to the world around him because the only world that is important is the world of the Talmudic text. So, this, so what emerged at the end, uh, and it was after uh, the death of the Baal Shem Tov in 1760, slowly but surely a movement of his followers emerged. Um, th there were two. Uh, one was the Magid of Meserich, the bear, the Magid of Meserich. The other was Yaakov Yosef of Polna. Yaakov Yosef Polna was more the intellectual who wrote the ideology of Hasidism. And indeed, if you look at Yaakov Yosef's books, you will see that they are filled with learning. They are not simply bubamices, they're not simply stories, but they are indeed deep theology, particularly the ideology of the tzaddik, of what the Hasidic Rebbe is all about, what we described a little bit earlier. The Magid of Meserich was the organizational builder who actually built the infrastructure of the Hasidic movement. Uh, which emerged and ultimately decentralized around his followers who then took the movement in their own personalized direction. So we have a, small, a, a, a brief era of centralization of this movement and finally in the second generation it breaks into all kinds of pieces and I'm, I'm going to pick up that at least the, er, the very first stage of that decentralization in just a minute. Uh, what emerges soon after beginning in the 1770s and 80s is a series of attacks from the opponents called the Mitnagdim, specifically between 1772 uh, and the 20s of the, 19th of the 19th century, a series of pamphlets, a pamphlet war, uh, public debates, uh, 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 strong uh, attacks from the opponents and the Hasidim answering them, a series of wars basically between these two opponents, the, those who feel that the Hasidic Rebbe, with his magical background, with his stories, with his relationship to the poor, uh, by going around and circulating, uh, essentially selling Judaism, of even blaming, I mean, you've got to read some of these pamphlets, um, they always talk about uh, you know, the, the, the Rebbe's are smoking something, uh, and it's not clear what they're talking about, but they're, they're definitely smoking something and having delirious uh, fits uh, and so on. And one of the most interesting debates, by the way, uh, which is a very interesting debate, is over, um, this, and, and this really reveals why the community elders were upset. This has nothing to do with the Gaon Elijah Vilna. The communal leaders were upset with Hasidism. Why? Because they were taking away revenue. And the, the perfect example is the case of ritual slaughter. According to the Hasidim, who believed, like Luria, from Luriana Kabbalah, in the transmigration of souls, that when you are killing an animal, it, you'll forgive the uh, joke, it's like your it could be your mother-in-law or at least a Gilgul, a transmigration of, your, of, of a relative and so on. And therefore, they insisted on very sharp knives and they rejected the ritual slaughter of the community. That wasn't kosher enough for them. They wanted to have their own slaughter. 
But of course, there was revenue involved in, uh, in, in uh, there was a tax on kosher meat, and therefore uh, the Jewish community protested. So what we're speaking about here is an, a, a, a series of oppositions, both from communal leaders and from other rabbis. But the real ideological arch rival of Hasidism, of course, is the Gaon and his disciples. And there the issue is indeed learning versus piety, learning versus religious ecstasy, uh, 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 commitment to, uh, to study and using one's intellect versus uh, essentially experiencing uh, God in, in prayer or experiencing God in nature, et cetera, et cetera. So these two seem to be rather incompatible, but nevertheless, uh, they sort of exist side by side. Um, but now I want to go one step beyond. Um, and according to my clock, I have uh, five minutes or so. All right, I'm gonna, I, I wanted a little more time, but I, I won't take very much more time. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, okay? If you're still with me, you still with me? All right, so now I want to go to the next generation. And I want to introduce, introduce you to two more figures. And they are lovely figures. And I'm sure you might have even heard of one of them, if not both. Uh, and by the way, the readings I've given you, I, I think are, I, I will talk about them uh, if you like, but I, I, I don't have the time to read them, but I think they're really very illustrative of some of the points I've made. Uh, there is uh, Solomon Maimon's famous description of uh, the court of the Magid of Mezerich, the guy I just talked about, um, the, the Hasidic court. Uh, there is a story of a, uh, a, a, an opponent who becomes a Hasid. Uh, and as you will hear, there is a description of the, of the Volojin Yeshiva, which I'm going to talk about right now. So the next generation uh, includes two rabbis that I want to speak about. One is Shneir Zalman of Ladi. Chabad, right? Where's the nearest Chabad? Can we go and talk to... Uh, They're everywhere. Everywhere. They're ubiquitous. All right, all right. Okay. So Shneir Zalman of Ladi, the founder of Chabad, Chochmah Bina Dea. Um, Chabad, of course, Lubavitch Hasidim. Uh, Schneer Zalman of Ladi uh, also wrote a very important book called the Sefer Tanya. Um, so Schneer Zalman of Ladi is my first uh, of this generation. Uh, and his equivalent on the opponent side is a rabbi, a disciple of Elijah Gaon of Vilna called Chaim of Elogin. So what I want to do is sort of pit the two of them to, uh, against each other. We have uh, clearly contextualize their ideologies, but to show you what happens in the next generation, which I find really quite fascinating, and maybe underscores you know, my, the point I wanted to make in this whole lecture. And I will do so just in a couple of minutes. Uh, let's start with Schneer Zalman of Ladi. Schneer Zalman of Ladi does something very decisive. He leaves southern Poland, Podolia, uh, Volonia, and so on, and he moves into the heartland of the Mitnagdim, Lithuania. The, in other words, he has enough guts to move his army of Hasidim northward and therefore begins to invade the, the holy precincts of the opponents. What is interesting about Chabad, and I'm not sure, well, I, I'm sure uh, your local Chabad rabbi could tell you this, uh, there is an intellectual side. Rabbi, in other words, what? Rabbis. Rabbis, many rabbis, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, they're, they're also in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, um, um, uh, you know, I, I wonder why they didn't sign up for this uh, lecture series. I, you know, they didn't find me uh, appropriate enough. I, I can understand I why. Yeah, all right, all right. I gave your brochure to 
My Talmud teacher ah. from Chabad. If he's not here, I don't know. Uh, well, my father, my father, we get something he didn't like. He would go fair, you know. So maybe that's what he would say. All right. So anyway, uh, but I'm wasting my time. So here, so Schneer's Almond of Ladi, in a very interesting move, argues that indeed the Hasid can't be a simply uh, an idiot. He has to study Talmud also. In other words, there is here an intellectual dimension to Hasidism which enters. Now, is this simply a strategy in entering the Lithuanian world of learning? Or indeed, does he ultimately believe that? But if you read the Sefer Atanya, you see to what kind of intellectual commitment Schneer Zalman of Ladi has made. So what we see here is a kind of bridger. In other words, moving from that emotional state of Hasidism into a greater appreciation of learning and Torah and pure Torah learning. All right. What about Chaim of Elogen? Chaim of Lodzhin is most famous for the creation of the Volodzhin Yeshiva, which was the great yeshiva of the 19th century in Lithuania. Chaim of Lodzhin was indeed a student like uh, the Gaon of Vilna in terms of his remarkable commitment to Torah. You will see in that passage that I gave you the number of hours these students have to study uh, uh, Torah. It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it's really a hard place where, you know, no external knowledge. All you have to do is study Torah, 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 Torah. But what I want to bring up is a wonderful uh, essay by an, 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 another of my colleagues who is now retired from the Hebrew University, Emanuel Etkis, who also has written several books about the Baal Shem Tov and also about the Gaon of Vilna. Uh, and uh, he, here is his words. I want to you know, uh, appreciate what he's doing. In studying Chaim of Elogen, he realizes that the language is a bit different than the Gaon of Vilna, that he speaks about a certain ecstasy a certain feeling, a certain emotion, which is, which is carried away. Uh, and, but the only difference between that language and the language of Hasidism is that we get it out of Torah. In other words, here is a movement perhaps towards the Hasidim. In other words, and not only that, one of the most important dimensions of Hasidism is the social dimension. I haven't emphasized it enough, the relationship between Sadiq and his community. The bonding between Hasidim, I mean, some could argue it's a kind of latent homosexuality, uh, which it is. I mean, people have also studied uh, the notion of homosexuality within Hasidic communities and so on. But that's another, but I don't want to talk about it negative, I, negative, positively. I don't want to speak about uh, this dimension. Uh, I, I simply want to talk about the bonding that went on with this community. One of the great successes of Hasidism is the sense of communal adhesion of a communal relationship of, of between the tzaddik being that organic person right in the center, bringing together the various groups and creating a new sense of community, a very powerful sense of community. But Chaim of Elogen was doing the same thing according to Etkis, which is beautiful. He was a kind of confessor. He was a kind of rabbinic sage that cared deeply about the personal relationships of his students. He was creating in the Volodian yeshiva a kind of counter community to Hasidim. In other words, with his language of, of emotion and ecstasy and worship and feeling, together with Torah, along with his sense of social community and his functioning almost like a tzaddik within Hasidism, what you get are replicas. In other words, if you look at Schneer Zalman moving towards uh, intellectualism, and you look at Chaim of Elogian moving towards the emotion and the prayer and the feeling and the sense of community, it's not exactly like they give up their own identities, you know, the Litvak and the Galiziana. But nevertheless, they seem to have listened in a most interesting way to each other. So I go back to my 
first point, uh, when I addressed the Reform rabbis and I said to them, you know, this language of spirituality is empty without Torah. Um, and of course, Torah is meaningless if it's just dry and there's nothing more to it than academia. Um, you need both. Um, and clearly, uh, the example I gave then was Shneur Zalman, uh, and of course, his teacher, the Besht, uh, and uh, of course, um, uh, the Gaon of Vilna and Chaim of uh, They don't exactly become one, uh, and we haven't solved our disputations, which will continue right throughout the 19th and 20th century in remarkably dramatic ways. But nevertheless, if you look carefully at their ideology, you see an echo of each in the other. And that seems to me what we might learn about debates and disputations, as I argued already with Halevi and Maimonides, uh, to link the two lectures together. We are all products of Halevi and Maimonides and their particular emphasis. Here we have a similar kind of polarization, but somehow it is brought together because both the value embodied by the Baal Shem Tov and the value of Gaona Vilna and his disciples uh, are our own. So I finished. <laughs> All right, cover a lot of ground. Anything you want to ask? Yes. Is it the role of either movement to not only uh, uplift oneself, but like on the bus, staring at the girl to make her realize maybe she is not dressing appropriately? Yeah, Do that, you try to uplift other people, or it's just... Yeah, 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 no, that's really the role of the tzaddik, sort of to, to, uh, to find divine sparks in, in everyone, to see the good side of everything, and to uplift. I mean, that's really the, the moral principle that's at work here. In other words, rather than distance oneself from evil, or distance themselves from bad intentions, try to find the kernel of goodness, and to pull that out, and to raise that. I mean, I love that expression, one goes down to, to go up. Uh, and, and, you know, that while it's filled as a Kabbalistic idea, uh, the Hasidim have made it into a moral principle. So, for example, in Hasidism, um, you know, if you ever watch people, uh, some people, not all people, some people uh, eat, it's not a pretty sight, right? I mean, you know, some people just, you know, uh, but the Hasidim have a notion of eating and holiness. In other words, even eating, even the most mundane acts, can be seen as beautiful and uplifting. So this applies, you know, not only to yourself, but it applies to, uh, to every other soul. So indeed, there is a certain level of moral conduct, of spirituality that emerges out of this community. But also, as I pointed out, it emerged in the great yeshiva of Elogen uh, in similar ways of trying... And, oh, by the way, I should mention to you, the successor of the Volodian Yeshiva is the Yeshiva of Israel Salanter uh, and the Musar Movement. The Musar Movement was an enormous movement of the 19th century, focusing on ethics and morality within the Yeshiva itself. In other words, trying to focus on, indeed, human, moral, ethical behavior. So, indeed, in both cases, we see uh, a concern for proper uh, behavior and uh, moral action. Yes. Are, are any of the other um, Hasidic movements as vital as Chabad is? Are they worth the study? 
Oh yeah, no, I mean, uh, there, there are so many and there, yeah. I, I think also theologically they're remarkably interesting. One of the most interesting is uh, the, the, uh, the Breslov Hasidim. Nachman of Breslov, who was a later figure in 19th century Hasidism, um, died without leaving a successor, which created a great crisis, and they never filled uh, his job. Uh, if you've been to Israel or elsewhere, you've seen these white yarmulkes, and that's the, uh, the Breslov Hasidim. Uh, Nachman of Breslov is a remarkably interesting intellect, uh, figure, and only a couple of years ago, a scholar discovered a pamphlet, a, a, a small book by him, uh, which speaks about his own vision of a messianic future, uh, but it is incredibly tolerant and open uh, to other peoples and other human beings. It is highly moral and spiritual uh, and way ahead of its time uh, and suggests indeed that the Breslov Hasidim are... are so, so what happens, of course, is each rabbi shapes a particular ideology. Chabad, indeed, is out there in the trenches in the secular world and has devoted itself... All right, so I'm going to get to Satmir. In fact, um, I had a great talk with, uh, with uh, David Myers, uh, um, uh, Ari, and uh, he's, he wants to come if he's invited. Uh, so David, My and the reason I mentioned David Myers is because he's just finishing a book on uh, the Satmir community of Kiryas Yoel in, uh, in New York uh, with his wife. And um, uh, he could talk to you about Satmir. Uh, Satmir is a kind of closed community. Satmir was also anti-Zionist from the start. Um, when I was leading uh, a group of graduate students several years ago, uh, I found a former uh, um, uh, member of Satmir who was a woman who took us into the inner depths of the community. It was an incredible trip that we took with her into, and she even found several Satmer Hasidim who would talk to us, but only in a parking lot, because they didn't want to be seen talking to us you know, outside. Uh, they're a very closed off community that only speaks Yiddish and so on. Um, and we were uh, questioning his kishkes. I mean, we were asking all kinds of qu personal questions about his life and, and his family, et cetera, et cetera. And he answered, quite frankly, it was quite revealing, but it was also fascinating because she, she gave us a kind of gendered view of the place of women within this Hasidic sect, which is, you know, uh, quite a, an issue. She had left and she'd gone to the university, which was a very radical move. So sure, there, there, are, there are many different Hasidic groups. Um, Chabad is out there in a way that others are not. Um, but you shouldn't simply uh, uh, dismiss these other groups. They are all very vital and very important. Many of them are in Brooklyn, other, others, uh, of course, they're all in Israel. Um, and they have played a very important role. I think what we are doing now uh, in recent scholarship is to look at their philosophies of Judaism. Beyond the German Jewish philosophers, uh, you know, th these Hasidic thinkers and also uh, the followers of Gaon of Vilna were original theologians, if, not in the genre of writing theology, but in terms of original thinking about Judaism. We have a, a whole a mess of material about Hasidic rabbis and the Shoah, and their thoughts about theodicy and the question of God and evil and so on. Um, so uh, this is a world unto itself, uh, and a world that needs to be explored. Whether you become a Hasid or not, uh, 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 it is a remarkable uh, development within Judaism as well as spawning its opponents who are also quite remarkable. And he wants me to finish. Uh, I, so I have a, well, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So first of all, I believe, I'm not wrong, that Chabad is a very small group of contemporary Hasidim. In other words, the other groups that are out there are much bigger. Am I incorrect? But I'm, I'm pretty sure if you look at the numbers, 
It's just that you see Chabad, you don't see the other Exactly. Are there are any books? I'd love to have so, a list. And then the yes, best, there okay. are books. Yeah, the okay. second question I had was, was just to give us an idea of population. So the Hasidic base of population versus the Nidnagid base at the times you were talking about, you know, what would the, what, what, what the populations really look like? Was Hasidic, you know, the same, bigger, smaller? Um, Okay, so this, this we'll is where up. you see the flaws in an intellectual historian. I like to talk yeah. about ideas and not statistics. <laughs> yeah. um, but I would say, first of all, to the first question, you're right. Chabad is not the largest, uh, but they are the most conspicuous. But they are a sizable group. I mean, uh, you know, if you compare, you know... Uh, well, that, that, that's up for debate, because I've been doing an analysis. And if you're talking about Chabad rabbis and Chabad families, there Small. are this way, it is not a big amount. It's just that they have so a disproportionate impact. So you compare them with the, the Satmeh, the Boba right. Hasidim, the Breslau uh, Hasidim, they're, they're, they're a lot more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Vincent's a rabbi. No, there are a lot of rabbi. All right, so I, I don't know. I, I, will, I will defer to him. Um, in terms of populations, it depends on the period we're speaking about. They continue to grow throughout the 19th century, but they have, of course, their enemies. So it depends. The, the southern regions of, uh, of, 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 of Poland, Lithuania, are populated heavily by Hasidim. Uh, in the north, uh, dominated by uh, the, the Litvak uh, uh, mentality and, and the Mitnagdim. Uh, and as I said, there is overlap, particularly uh, in the yeshiva network and so on. Uh, and they also become extremely, uh, 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 you know, attacked by the, the modern masculine, who are the smallest of the three groups. In other words, still we're speaking about traditional society and the pale of settlement throughout the 19th and 20th century. So I, I would be, uh, I, I couldn't give you figures, but I think these are sizable groups which are comparable to each other. That would be my guess, but I, we would have to check the numbers. There is a whole literature now on the political dimension of Hasidism, which has emerged in, uh, in the Kingdom of Poland and so on. Their politics, their relationships to the local governments, I mean, it, it's really quite interesting. In terms of uh, biographies, um, well, for, for Chabad, um, the, there, there are several new studies of, uh, of Schneir Zalman and of Chabad ideology and particularly of the death of the rabbi. See, there's a big controversy which hovers over Chabad. Uh, the last rabbi who died, uh, it, it was attributed to being call, calling himself and his disciples called him the Messiah. And this created uh, an enormous uh, challenge uh, because the idea of a human uh, messiah was also divine. In other words, sounded, smelled like Christianity. And in fact, one of my colleagues at uh, Yeshiva University named David Berger wrote an entire book in which he said, you cannot eat kosher food of Chabad, you cannot dab it in their synagogues because what they do is avodah zarah, it is idolatry. Uh, he went that far, a, a very prominent Orthodox rabbi. Um, that, of course, was the extreme. And, of course, Chabad either hid that ideology or diminished its significance. I'm sure your, your Chabad rabbi will tell you it's not really that important anymore. But that messianic dimension has emerged, of course, not only in Hasidism, but in Israel and in, 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 you know, in, I don't know what you want to call it, either the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, and, and that whole ideology of Gush Emunim and so on. Uh, again, uh, these, these ideas have come up and are very much part. I, I will actually touch upon that when I talk about Messianism in my last lecture. Um, so uh, there are a variety of books. The book I'm thinking of is by a sociologist at Queens College on the Rebbe, um, 
uh, and I, his name just escapes me. There is also another book that is really hard to read by Elliot Wolfson on the same subject of the, of the death of the rabbi and messianism in Chabad. But this has caused an enormous controversy of late and has really uh, gained lots of attention. Uh, but there's plenty to read. Uh, you could read uh, on Hasidism in general. I mentioned Etkes, I mentioned Rossman. Uh, uh, I, I could mention uh, a remarkable teacher that I want to propose uh, to Ari as a candidate for, uh, if not this lecture, for a lecture. Uh, and her name is Ada Rappaport Albert, and she writes incredible stuff, she, particularly on feminism and Hasidism, on, on women in Hasidism and so on. Uh, but she is an incredible scholar who uh, lives in London. Uh, and th there's so much. Again, uh, I, I can help you, but uh, I think I, listing more books is not what he, what he wants me to do right now. So just to wrap up, a few things. First of all, um, you probably don't know this, but uh, I don't know if you know. I come from both sides. So my father's side is Lithuanian mid-90s, who moved to South Africa in 1918. My mother's side are Chabad uh, Lubavitch. So uh, I have, yes, if, if it was a few years before, they would have said Shiva when my parents got married, which is what happened way back then. You would, I guess you would get thrown, I, believe, I don't know if it's true or not, but I guess if someone from, from the Hasidic world married some of the world, the parents would disown, at least a bit nagin, I think, which is sure, sure. So I, I'm from both sides, so in my blood is both sides. We'll see what Ezra comes up with. I have no idea, but this, this is Ezra's first lecture. I'm glad he came here to learn about the family history. That was number one. Wonderful. Number two is um, those of you who came to New York with us last year, and hopefully some people will come this year, know we spent time with Chabad. And uh, if you read Telushkin's book, and if you speak to any Chabad rabbi, I won't give names, but there are people in our community. One of the things they emphasize with the, the Rebbe that is still passed away, from what I understand, is the magical things that he did, Rabbi uh, Professor Ruderman. So magic and magical things is still going on. They, that's what they talk about. I mean, he was a parent. He was, sounds like an amazing man. I don't know if anybody here got to meet him. I never got to meet him. In a, in a, there is a short, there is a family story where, in, in my family's history, my grandfather's family in um, Eastern Europe in Rakeshek hosted the sixth Rebbe in, in our house for six days, seven days, it's written about. So, and they were talking about magic then. The magic still comes back. And the other thing we learned when we were in New York is, that, that, and the Chabad will not tell you here, but if you go to New York, you will actually learn about it and see it. There is a split today. I don't know what the numbers are, but there's a substantial group who do believe that the Rebbe was the Messiah. The Rebbe's coming back, and we heard about this, and I, I you know, you hear about things, but when we were coming back before Shabbos to our hotel to get ready for part of our, uh, to the evening program, these Chabad people came up and asked us, we had wrapped tefillin, and they hand out material, and I have the material. It is the Messianic branch. And if you go to Chabad headquarters, the Messianic group of Chabad has taken over the shul in Chabad headquarters. So if you go to the services downstairs, they dance around about the Messiah. So what I like, what I found interesting about this lecture is that it, it kind of brings it back. So Sabbatianism, Sabbatianism and the Messianic idea, and if, you say, if, if the argument of Hasidism was to repel that, it, has, it, did, it, it, did it didn't do it. It's in there. Okay, so uh, the last thing I want to say was, as you can see, all these lectures interconnect. So you lose out unless you go to all of them. So I'm going to ask Mike Rubin, how many lectures have you been to so far? Have you kept count? I have not kept count. Okay. Well, last year Mike went to like 22. So at our closing lecture, we will find out how many of you, well, how, 
who went to the most lectures, and those people will get prizes. I want to make sure you know that. So if intellectual curiosity and knowledge is not enough for you, I urge you to go to as many programs, because you will get an award or reward at the final program. I hope you will start thinking about the final program and join us. And um, I tonight, get a prize. I go to all of them. You do. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Instead of the honorarium, I will give you the same prize that the other people get. I think that's fair. So thank you. Donation to CSP. Okay. So I wanted to thank you all for uh, coming here. You should know that in my notes I sent out this morning, I went into a little more detail about each of the people you mentioned. And one thing I did find was that. The, the second generation of people that you mentioned um, were actually, I, in addition to being um, geniuses, apparently, um, and one of them get writing books when they were eight years old or so on, they also did study outside of the Jewish text, according to what I found. So they studied science and all that. Um, anyway, so you get the materials I gave you. Please come to future programs for your sake, not for mine. Hope to see you tonight and this week. Tomorrow is our f closing series in our adult education. And that's all I have to say, but if you could join me for a quick photo up here. I want to get this group in a photo with our speaker. So we'll have Professor Rudiman right here, and the group come here, and then you can go run back to your office. Anybody wants to stay?